in this episode of Emergence, we'll be talking to Daniel Stewart. He's an animal behaviourist, and he'll be able to talk to us about how understanding dog behaviour is essential in improving rabies control. Welcome to Emergence, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Alistair King. Opinions expressed during this podcast are those of myself and my guests, and are not necessarily representative of those of MSD Animal Health. Recently, I was very pleased to have an opportunity to talk to Daniel Stewart when he was visiting the US. Daniel is an animal behaviourist I've met many times at rabies conferences. Daniel has done an amazing amount of work improving the human-to-dog interface in many countries, and talking to him, it is clear that his teachings are as much about human behaviour as they are dog behaviour. He has some really important lessons for us to learn in reducing dog bite injuries. During our chat, Daniel refers to Mozambique and someone working with dogs there. That person is Vittoria Sonia, and she has been one of the recipients of a Rabies Hero Award for all that she has done. And then later in this episode, I'll be talking to John Atkinson to hear about his experiences redesigning the Emergence website with Martin Nowak and what they are aiming to achieve to improve your experience. But first, to Daniel. So Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Really good to have you. Your work as your work is a, as a animal behaviorist, as a consultant. I know you do a lot around around the world in a lot of different places. And why I wanted to have you on here is what you do is a really important part of what we look at with rabies control. It's not just about vaccinating dogs, but it's about how people live with dogs as well and how we have that relationship. How did you first get involved with rabies control? Well, you know, I was always with animal welfare, all right? Um, I ran animal welfare, senior inspector as a, as a policing unit for, for upholding the law in our country. And then the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came in, and that influenced rabies control within South Africa. And we then started working, because of the Gates Foundation, we went from having to be very focused or the government having to be very focused on animal welfare trends within the international community. So we couldn't just go along and do what we wanted. They wanted a welfare component to the rabies project that was sponsored by the Gates Foundation through the WHO. So with that, I then went from welfare into working with the government of South Africa um, on the rabies project that was that was funded through the WHO. So that's how I got involved with, with rabies originally. But, you know, how did we really get involved with the government or how did they know about me? You know, there's 54 million people in my country. Why did they choose me? Um, is that within the city that we, that we lived in and where Kevin LaRue, I'm sure everybody knows Kevin LaRue, um, we had the similar phone call from a community that was really up in arms about the number of dogs that were um, killing livestock, biting children, potentially being diseased and stuff like that. So Kevin and I actually joined forces at that point about a year and a half before the Gates Foundation actually decided to sponsor rabies. So we started building our relationship up then and started working within a community by removing problem dogs, specific problem dogs, and sterilizing the rest. So we didn't just go along and kill the dogs like some people are doing or just vaccinate them and leave them. We actually systematically went through 
problem dogs that were true biters, true offense creators, took them into welfare. Um, and then we started sterilizing. We couldn't just leave the problem to, to, to continue. So we thought, let's try and sterilize these dogs and control the population through that. At the same time, of course, vaccinating. That is how Kevin and I started. We came together and then the Gates Foundation then continued with that little pilot project that Kevin and I had started. So, so we're talking about, um, you know, the work that I've been doing in rabies and, and, and you asked a few questions over email about, you know, why behavior? Why, why that kind of scenario where, um, we've always said and, you know, our colleagues around the world have said, well, it's simple, just vaccinate dogs and uh, just get the country to just accept that rabies need to be eliminated and, and, and. And it's these simple things that are not wrong. They're 100% right. Just vaccinate the dog, we eliminate the disease. However, when, we are, when we're looking at um, training and behavior, um, we have found that the, the simple reason for educating people on behavior is to give them confidence to just go and vaccinate the dog. So I think, you know, when you when you sent me the email and, and started talking about it, I'm thinking, well, this is this is this is a great opportunity to um, to make countries understand that um, it is just simply vaccinate the dogs, but there is so much around that, so we can just vaccinate the dogs, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And I, I think that's why I find it really interesting what you've done. I mean, a couple of years ago, saw it when, you know, PRP and, and the Paracon meetings and you've been talking. And I, I've always talked, well, maybe not always, uh, but certainly for a good number of years, you know, a lot of this area, these transboundary emerging diseases, I try and talk about the holistic picture rather than just getting too focused on an individual little bit of it, because I think you've got to get that broader interest. And yeah. I think there's been some really amazing stuff done on the human dog interface and things like that related to rabies and the work that's been done. I remember a few years ago seeing a project in India. I don't think they've continued it. But what they were finding when they were going out catching dogs with with nets and everything, it made the the people around scared of the dogs because they saw this, you know, a lot of noise, a lot of panic and netting and everything going on. So they they did a, did a project where they went out and spent ages befriending the dogs. So a group of people would just go out with food, Correct. putting food down, getting the dogs to trust them. And over a period of time, they got to the point where you could just pick this dog up put it in the in the van, go and do the vaccination and the neuter, take it back and release it back. And the dog was calm and happy. And what they saw was this change in attitude of the people who suddenly the dogs weren't something to be scared of. They were something to welcome into the into the the family of the community. Cool. And it just changed everything so much. And I think that's such a, a lovely story of what we're able to do. Yeah. I think that was done by HSI originally. I think that was the idea. Um you know, actually, Science National. I'm sure it was them. Yeah, it could have been. I remember them putting a, a thing at the uh, first companion animal management meeting that we had in Istanbul, I think it was. Yes, that's where it was. Yep, that, that's right. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So with that as well, we've come across a number of organizations that have looked at it in small organizations. And I think we must never forget the small guys, the work that they're actually doing for a small community. I know it's a global problem. And you know, there's a billion dogs out there, 
but the small guys, the small communities that actually work together are actually very, very successful. So there's a little island on in Mozambique or just off Mozambique called Ilia. Now on that island, there was a lady who, very compassionate lady who actually lives in Kenya and decided to buy a house in Mozambique on the island. Mm -hmm. And so when she first went there, she realized that there was exactly the same attitude, bad attitude towards the dogs, children throwing stones, all that kind of stuff. A lot of puppies on the streets. Um, it's a very, very small island, but there was a problem. There was a welfare problem there. So because she has the money, thank goodness, she started an organization. She then brought in a vet and started sterilizing the dogs or attempted to bring the ster dogs to be sterilized. She couldn't catch them. So that's why I got involved because I actually flew out there and I tried to train the guys there on how to actually physically catch dogs, trap dogs, handle dogs and do everything like that so we could sterilize them. And of course, vaccinate them at the same time. The local hospital had no um, PEP, um, had no idea about how to treat patients for dog bites. It was very expensive. Um, there was no uh, uh, dog rabies either as well in the country. So we had to do a lot of negotiating to try and get the right stuff in. Now, at the end of the day, is that there's a full-time clinic on the island. She's moved to mainland. If any dog problems arrive, it gets reported to the clinic, not to the human clinic, but to the welfare clinic. But what is really interesting, what they've done, is that every dog that is sterilized gets a magnificent collar. And I'm saying magnificent <laughs> collar. She, she, she lives in Kenya, and she's got local ladies there who actually are beading collars, <laughs> leather <laughs> collars with beads on them. They look magnificent, okay? But now we've spoken, I've been there a few times, and now the children are running down the street, stop because of the dog, education's working. They notice that the dog's got a collar on, and immediately their body language, the kid's body language changes and goes, oh, it's, okay, it's an okay dog. And they walk past it. Instead of, in the beginning, they would pick a stone up and throw it. Yeah. So from a visual point of view, just a simple good collar has actually made a world of difference with the bite, with the bite rates going down at the, at the local hospital. You know, there is still problems on the mainland because there's no real control at the mainland, but they're working from the coast inland. And the last time I was there, we started starting to plot all the dogs, the sterilized, vaccinated, things like that, so we can actually see a, a picture um, of it. But it's an amazing little project stemming from one lady yeah. who, who saw it and goes, yeah, let's, let's try and do this. And she's made it. I think that's one of the things in in rabies control it's so much of it is one person just starts something up in these yeah. kind of things and there are so many people this is why we're kind of introducing the the rabies hero awards as well because it's that recognition of people doing these amazing little bits uh and managing to to make a real difference which is great mm. you mentioned the there is still this culling of dogs sometimes being employed as in an attempt to control rabies it doesn't work We've seen that is actually does the opposite. Do you have any thoughts on what what's happening with that? Why why is culling not working? I mean, as you said, it doesn't work. I mean, it's been proven in multiple countries and multiple times. But unfortunately, I think it's a it's a it's a lack of awareness, and we're at fault. The community, the rabies community, in my opinion, is at fault by not being able to create good enough awareness to governments so they actually believe and listen to us. 
you know, sometimes we have the ability to say, guys, we're the experts, don't do it. But other countries have taken upon themselves to think that they know better for their country. And once that mistake is made, which it has been a number of times, we're realizing that, you know, yes, rabies is definitely going to come back. And so are dog bites going to increase because you've got this void that's been created now from this mass killing where more dogs come in. The dogs that are remaining are actually now fighting territory because there's new dogs now rocking up. So they will have conflict between themselves. So there's welfare between animal and animal. Then humans will get involved with that, and therefore there's conflict between human and animal. And then, of course, these new dogs are not vaccinated if there was ever a vaccination campaign in the country. So we have realized that it's a hard fight to fight, but we're finding that we are working in it, and we are chipping away at that block. We would then stop the culling and be able to get on top of um, herd immunity, which we are trying to do. So I think that's where um, the, the culling part just really doesn't work. And there's enough evidence out there. Universities, as well as practical field work, prove that it does not work. I think one of the one of the problems with rabies control is very expensive. When people get bitten, then you've got post-exposure prophylaxis, which costs an awful lot of money. And in a lot of these countries, they don't have that available as resources. And of course, what happens is, as you say, because people don't build proper relationships with the dogs and don't know about how to live with them, then you have this high rate of dog bites, which aren't necessarily anything to do with rabies. Some of them are, but they're not all rabies. And then then people still need to be treated because you don't know whether the dog has rabies. So your your work really focuses on reducing that that dog bite level and improving that whole relationship, the human-dog relationship in communities, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I like dogs. It's, it's no... That's good. Know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a secret. But, you know, through the many countries, and I think I've worked with 32 different countries, maybe not visited them, but I've worked with through 32 different nationalities as such around the world. Um, I think it was 18 countries I visited. So when you're looking at, and everybody has a similar um, attitude towards dogs in the sense that they are scared of them, um, they think that dogs just carry disease all the time, um, that dogs are they, they aggressive all the time and things like that. And trying to change that, that focus, that attitude, that concept um, in so many different religions and cultures, it's not an easy task. But there was the, 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 the whole idea about reducing dog bites is that if we're looking at the stats on how people get rabies, it's primarily through a dog bite. It's not necessarily dogs don't go around spitting people in their eyes. They just simply bite them just simply through a negative interaction. Yeah. It's not a purpose interaction. So trying to change people's attitudes and ideas about dogs, that calms our behavior down and therefore it goes on to the dog and calms the dog's behavior and therefore there is no negative interaction and i found this in multiple countries that if we just keep calm and carry on dogs don't bite you you produce some really good infographics and things on that kind of side as well haven't you things to make it very easy for people to see what they need to do when they're around dogs and how to recognize when to stay away from a dog and when you can approach a dog 
Yeah, we we've we've tried to work. Well, I've tried to work with with a number of different organisations: the WHO, uh, Global Alliance for Rabies Control. I know Mission Rabies has got some stuff out. Um, I know there's a whole bunch of different information out there, and all basically it's it says the same things. And the 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 biggest problem that I have is that we need to take that stuff and actually put it into a school curriculum, not necessarily trying to go out to one classroom, one child. Um, we need to be able to have it so we can actually change a, a generation of knowledge. You know, if we could achieve that, then we're going to be actually reducing dog bites by at least 80%. And I do think that this is one of our, our greatest obstacles is, you know, can we get information? Can we get decent education into the school curriculum? If we start doing that, we all see a difference. From my knowledge, my interaction with a number of different communities um, from a smaller level, it has made a huge, huge difference. Changing people's attitude and behaviors, which makes it's two different things, is that we have seen a reduction in dog bites. So it can happen. But it also has to be a generation change, not just a single person today's change. When you've been when you've been out doing the training, showing people how to work with animals and things, what is there something you think makes a good animal handler? How do you do the training, and what makes a good dog handler? You're saying if I can profile a good animal handler or vaccinator, it's those guys that rock up in dirty jeans that don't really care about getting their hands dirty, and they'll just wash it under the local tap. You know, and but they're also calm. This is yeah. a lot of things that people are calmer. They're more precise on what they're going to do. They work as a team. And those are the kind of people that we find are absolutely ideal handlers and vaccinators. Doesn't matter where you go in the world, I will be able to choose those kind of people out that little group to say, there's my team that I want to work with. When you've being in part of the vaccination campaigns and what you've seen, what have you seen as the biggest pain points during the during these? Biggest, sorry, biggest? Pain points, the biggest problems that you've come Big across problem. when you... The lack of awareness in, in the public, number one, because in some countries, because as we've said already just now, is that some countries are still thinking that culling is the answer. We stopped the government culling and we then try and go along and do something, and the community actually stops us from vaccinating because they still think we're culling. Yeah. So there's one of our biggest challenges that we could have in the field. So awareness to the community of what we're really doing. And then another thing is that we often get within countries is they, they might have the vaccine, but we also need other equipment. So one needle per dog. You know, they don't supply enough equipment for the vaccination campaign. So they, they're going to go, well, we didn't tell us to order 10,000 needles and 9,000 doses of vaccine. You know, they have 9,000 doses of vaccine with 100 needles. Yeah. That is a big welfare problem. And not just for the day that we're vaccinating, but for future. If we leave a community where a week later animals come down with abscesses, lameness and that kind of stuff we have now stopped ourselves from going in there next year 
So awareness is huge with a community, but also leaving a good legacy to the community is just as important. So those are the kind of things that I find out of vaccination campaign is a vital challenge. I think you're, a lot of what you, you do is really trying to drive a lasting change. You know, getting out and vaccinating dogs today does make a difference. And if we can get enough animals vaccinated, that's great. But it is not changing behavior. And a lot of what you're focusing on is that around human perception and behavior. So what would be your advice to to authorities on how to sustain results? You're 100% correct. You know, human behavior and animal behavior, are they interlink. Um, so, you know, by as because we can educate ourselves, we can start being the change before the animals will change. Yeah. So we definitely need to be the change. Then to authorities is we need to be able to train the staff to vaccinate the dogs, train the staff or, or train um, ourselves to be able to get it, enough awareness into the community and education to the community that they understand what we are trying to achieve. But if you include the communities and let them take a little bit of ownership, that will actually help the governments as well by doing their job. And then it becomes a behavior change, not just in the government, but also in the communities that we're working in. Um, <clears throat> and these are the kind of things that we need to slowly build up because it's not an, it's not a, we don't have a magic wand that we can do it or else we would have eliminated rabies by now. But yeah. when we were actually um, building up, getting those right community members, finding those champions that we keep on mentioning within communities, within government level, as well as lower level, um, and putting them in the same same thought you know, line of thought. And these are the kind of things that I feel that are extremely, extremely important. And it comes back to that education, doesn't it? That's part of what you're talking about there. If you say that not just with rabies, a lot of these transboundary emerging diseases, governments have set up vaccination programs the people at the end of the chain don't don't understand why, and therefore they're not. It's not going to change their behaviour. You've got to engage them fully, and so the children, as you say, are really a key thing for that because that is where we'll make a difference for the future. Correct. We've actually yeah. we've been doing something with the CDC in Haiti where we we've been doing similar to what you were talking about of uh, actually introducing education program into the schools and hopefully we'll get some results out of that as well and we'll see if we've managed to push that that difference in how people look at things when i've seen some of the stuff you've you've when you've been talking presented you've quoted figures such as four and a half million dog bites a year in the u.s and over fifty thousand in the uk it makes it really clear rabies is not the only cause of dog bites and you're trying to address all of that what factors what are the biggest factors do you observe that drive dog bites? You know, if you if you look at the reason why, I'm talking a common dog. I'm not I'm not talking about a rabid dog. And this yeah. is exactly what you're saying now. Is that you know I personally have been attacked by a dog with rabies. Okay, I was there. I stepped in front of somebody who had just been bitten by the dog. We immediately yeah. sent him off to hospital, things like that, and I had to deal with the dog. 
that dog is totally unaware of its normal behavior. All right. But when you come down to preventing dog bites on a mass scale, just as you said in the US and the UK that, you know, don't have a large dog rabies um, problem. There's also good reasons for that. And that's simply looking at our body language and they create a, a an environment where the dog has always have to be on survival mode as such, you know, self-preservation is great for all mammals. So, you know, if a dog sees a child walking up and the last five children have thrown stones at it and the dog cannot get away from the sixth child, what do you think the dog's going to do? But if we start changing behavior within the entire child population and nobody throws stones at the dog, the dog won't have to worry about self-preservation. So these are the kind of things that we really do need to look at of saying, how can we educate how can we change behavior that we can create a happy environment um, with everybody? I think that's a really good note to leave it on, Daniel. Really appreciate the chat. This has been great. Uh, there's a whole heap of really interesting information in there for people and useful information on, on what we do and how we move forward, both for rabies control and for just improving and reducing the number of dog bites. I think that's really essential. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. And I, as I say, it's great. And I hope anybody listening, you know, learns something and, and continues the, the work. Thank you. Daniel and I were talking for over an hour. I found it fascinating hearing about everything he's done in so many different places. I think it's really important that we bring this into what we do as rabies control. Now let's hear from John Atkinson as he tells us a bit about the new Emergence website. John, great that you're able to join me. When I started the Emergence website five years ago, my idea was that there wasn't anywhere where people could go to just find information about emerging and transboundary diseases in one place where they could find out about conferences about uh, papers that were released uh, disease outbreaks here from experts that was the idea behind it and now you and Marta have both worked on this new improved updated version what was the thinking behind your the changes you made you're right there is there is a or there has been an absence of of one place to really direct people to to where to go for particular resources and i think you know the original emergence idea um, really satisfied um, a need uh, for people to gain information in one place over the years we we got more and more people subscribing we know from going to events and talking to people that, that they were um, appreciating the quarterly emergence newsletter and website that we were putting out. So we did a, a very simple survey of our subscriber email list and the results were were, were really, really positive. Um, you know, people unanimously liked what we did. They liked the fact that we're bringing um, information about topical diseases and issues together. Um, and actually, the the main the main results we found were that people wanted to hear more from us, or at least more from Emergence, um, to reflect the fact that 
transboundary and emerging diseases are, are very fast moving and and changing all the time. So um, there was a, a real request from people to say, you know, can you do what you do, but could you do that more often and more frequently, which is where the idea of, of the new website came from. One of the things with the old website, my idea was it was going to be updated every quarter. That proved quite difficult because of the, the base that it was on, how we had to do everything. And there was a lot of software programming going on. But you've, you've been looking at how to make this much quicker so we can really respond to what's happening in the world, haven't you? Sure. And I think, you know, if we look at websites in general, they've they've moved on a lot over the years. And, and so we, we took that um, learning really from looking at a variety of other websites and combined that with this call to for people to gain access to information much more quickly. And we worked together with a, an agency called ProAgrica um, to build the, the new emergence website, um, which then brings together not only has a, a really flexible format, so uh, we can have information about individual diseases. We can have a disease report section to tell people where outbreaks are and a knowledge hub, which you can search a little bit like you do with, with Google, for example. You can search for the kind of thing that you're looking for. Um, but also we've managed to, to incorporate uh, the Twitter feeds and, and, of course, the podcast as well into one site. So um, when people visit the website, they'll be able to see new articles on there very frequently. I think the disease reporting page is really exciting now. It's doing what I was hoping we would be able to do many years ago. Just explain that. Explain about a little bit more about that page. We know that um, people want to know where the transboundary and emerging diseases are. So when you go onto the global disease report section, you can search for the particular region um, or continent of the world that you're interested in. You can click on that location and then that will bring up uh, an overall number of reported outbreaks, affected countries, affected species over the last six months. But if you'd like to search for the number of outbreaks within a particular date range, you can do that as well. And you can also filter by the disease and find more information as you scroll down the right-hand side about an individual outbreak. These outbreaks are, are, are based on uh, reports that are, are published through the OIE-WAHE system as well. Um, so these are the official reports of these sorts of transboundary and emerging diseases. We've been really lucky over the last few years. The focus on section, which I started writing articles for focused on talking about specific diseases, but we've had a number of real experts who've volunteered to write articles and had some great names there. Are you going to be continuing with that? Yeah, the the focus on section um, was... Uh was one of the sections that people rated most highly. And that's also reflected when we have a look at the analytics of the visitors to the to the original Emergence website as well. So people who, who know about Emergence every quarter would tend to go straight to the focus on article. And, and I don't think that's any surprise, really, because they are great. You know, we... As you say, with some some really uh, well respected authors, uh, experts in their field, um, and they they write about a particular topic of of particular importance um, at that moment in time. So whether that's African swine fever, whether it's rabies, whether it's about transparent disease in general, it's a really nice article to bring their thoughts in one place on that particular topic. And we really do try and make sure that 
the author's voice comes through. So, you know, when we when we ask them if they're interested in, in writing a focus on article, uh, we're not prescriptive at all. We would, would really like to, to for readers to hear that author's voice come through on that particular topic. They have basically have a free reign to write about that particular disease or, or topic of their particular interest. I'll put in the in the description section for the podcast, I'll put the link to, to Emergence to the website. We're going to change slightly with the approach to the website and the newsletter as well, I think. It used to be the newsletter was simply a short version of what was in the newsletter, but you're going to, of what was on the website, but you're going to take a slightly different approach. I think the great thing about the the new platform, the new website, um, is that we can be flexible and we can adapt to to the needs of of the audience and the and to reflect what's going on with these particular diseases at at that moment in time. So yes, with the the new email newsletter, uh, we've got a flexible format to that as well. So we can drop in uh, little summaries of particular articles and that then links to whatever articles, uh, maybe the latest articles about a particular disease or, or an event, for example. It's really nice that we can we can take that in different directions as as we need to based on what's going on with the various diseases. And we'll be able to use that newsletter if something happens suddenly in the the transboundary emerging world, we'll be able to use that newsletter to quickly get information out to people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole the whole point, the real kind of spirit or essence of emergence is about bringing whatever's important for these different diseases to people. Um, actually, ultimately, up to real time, really. Thanks, John. I love the new site. I think it looks so nice, so clean refreshing really really well designed thank you for all the effort you and marta have put into it i encourage anyone who hasn't yet gone to it to go and have a look at the new site and definitely sign up to the newsletter so you can get those updates thank you very much while i was talking to daniel i know we used a few acronyms and referred to a few resources I've explained the acronyms in the notes to the podcast, and we'll put a link to the resources on the Emergence website. Don't forget to contact us if you have any contacts on the podcast or anything you want to hear covered. Thank you for listening, and stay safe.